0: Okay, everybody, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are really excited for this conversation. We have actually quite a few people that have registered, so we're feeling very honored and we're very excited to kick off this uh, important topic. Um, For our webinar today, we're going to be talking about AWS versus GCP and understanding the key differentiators. We're going to be focusing this conversation specifically towards data just because of the subject matter experts that we have joining us today. So let's get straight to it. My name is Kalia Garrido and I'm in charge of digital strategy and um, marketing here at Great Data Minds. Great Data Minds is a new breed of data collaborative. We are based in Denver, Colorado. We're a group of passionate data activists and we have a staggering amount of experience between our resources and our advisors, two of which you will hear from today. Um, So we work with organizations of all sizes. And uh, we help promote modern data practices to help companies thrive through the use of data. Now, please keep us in mind as you guys get towards your uh, 2020 planning and your planning for the the coming year and the coming decade. Um, We have advisory services and solutions around data management, data ops, self-service analytics, agile program management, and we never forget the humans, so we focus on data literacy as well. Um, Great Data Minds also produces a whole bunch of really interesting content. We have podcasts coming out. We have uh, blog posts, videos, live events, and just like today, webinars and online events. Um, So if you haven't already signed up for our newsletter, please do. And this will keep you abreast of all the cool stuff we have going on. So some housekeeping uh, information for today's session specifically. We're going to try to keep our session to 60 minutes or less, and we want to be really mindful of everybody's time. Um, everybody on the line is muted, but the question and answer section has been enabled. So if you guys do have questions as you're listening to this conversation, please feel free, pop them right into the Q&A, and uh, we will have some time to get to them at the end. Um, So a quick disclaimer in advance of today's discussion, specifically, we've seen this topic when we're talking about AWS and GCP in particular elicit some strong opinions from people. We've done this a couple times before and we are always uh, sure to have lively discussions around this. Um, So just a quick note that Great Data Minds does not necessarily align with today's panelists, but we are super happy to facilitate the discussion. So let's get to it. Um, We have two of our great data minds advisors on the line today. So I will introduce Matt first. Matt started his career in academia as a math professor before joining Overstock as a data scientist in 2015. Um, From the business side of things, Matt works on overhauling processes, improving teamwork, incorporating engineering best practices and delivering real concrete value to companies. On the data side of things, he focuses intently on data and cloud engineering, uh, working extensively with AWS GCP, that's key, both AWS and GCP. Also containers, Apache Airflow, Airflow GPUs, um, among other technologies. Uh, we also have Joe Reese on the line. Joe is a business-minded math nerd. That is, he's self-professed, self-professed. Um, he's worked both behind the scenes and on the front lines of companies of all different sizes for the last two decades. He understands firsthand that winning data means Winning with data means more than just having the right tools, and it goes beyond just helping companies with their culture, process, architecture, lots of things. So, okay, in addition to this, Joe has co-founded two groups, the Utah Data Engineering Meetup and um, SLC Python, which helps run the Salt Lake City Google Cloud Meetup. My goodness, Joe's a busy guy. He also sits on the board of Utah Python, a nonprofit dedicated to advocating Python in Utah in his spare time. He goes rock climbing around the West, and he has two kids. That's a lot of things you're doing there, Joe. It's a few. Wow, just a few. Okay, so Matt and Joe are the, co-found, uh, the co-founders of Ternary Data, and they specialize in helping build a solid data foundation in these three core areas, data pipelines, data warehousing, d- slash data lakes, and ML and AI workflows. So long-winded introduction, but thank you guys so much for joining us today. Um, so you guys are both certified in Uh, AWS and GCP. I feel like that's a really important way for us to begin this conversation so I just wanted to call that out there. Um, So to get things kicked off can you tell us a bit about your company?
1: Yeah so ternary data, um, you know we started this company uh, around this time last year really and and I think kind of the shtick that Matt and I have is we call ourselves recovering data scientists. Mm -hmm. I think it's a pretty important a moniker, because we've worked in data science roles over um, you know uh, several years, and I think every almost every time a data science role ends up being more of a data engineering role. Mm. Uh, and so what we I think what we realized was we um, have you ever seen the uh, the AI hierarchy of needs where AI sits at the top, and uh, you know, things like data foundation is below. Um, like everyone wants to start at the top with AI and machine learning and whatnot, but they Fail to build the uh, um, requisite foundation underneath um, data pipelines, workflows, et cetera, analytics even. So we took it upon ourselves to um, I guess start a company around to build, helping companies build a solid data foundation and uh, help them get more value from their data so they can succeed um, when they want to do data science. So that's really why we started Tarnary. And we chose AWS and Google. We found that they're, um, I think, best of breed clouds. Um, we don't have too much experience in Azure. Uh, not to say that we won't in the future, but, uh, you know, I, I've been using AWS since 2010.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, around 2011, I think I checked out a GCP uh, with um, App Engine. So, and quite a, you know, quite a bit of history with it, I would say both uh, both clouds. And so, just, you know, I think you, you use what you like. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And what I'll add to that is that we, this company was basically born in the cloud. So, we're data focused. Mm-hmm but we we tend to not work too much with on-prem workloads except to integrate those workloads with cloud technologies. Um, We love cloud technologies because they scale, because they're easier for us, honestly, and also because we believe that they're easier for the customer as they're scaling up to big data scale. And um, as we talk about differences between these two clouds, I'll be hitting on two themes. I'll first be talking a lot about Lego bricks and the size of the Lego bricks on the two clouds. Everything in the cloud is kind of a component that you want to attach to some other component to make it useful. And then the second theme will be first mover advantage and first mover disadvantage. And so we'll try to talk about how AWS has key strengths by being first to market and how those sometimes can be drawbacks too.
0: Nice. Um, OK, so whenever we have this conversation, there's, you seem like there, there's a lot of subjective opinions that come into play. Um, but let's start to make this a little bit more objective maybe in our conversation today so that it can kind of span the masses. So let's break down some of these key areas that we're always looking at when we're talking about a top cloud provider. Um, can you guys share with me how do you think AWS and GCP stack up when it comes to security?
2: Yeah, so I'm going to start by just talking about security in the cloud in general. And I want to address two misconceptions that I hear frequently. So the first misconception is that cloud is inherently insecure. And people will cite a handful of data breaches on cloud services and say, oh, AWS S3 is not secure because there was this data breach back in 2015 or 2014. In every case so far, these data breaches were due to customer misconfigurations as opposed to the inherent security of the cloud. And then the second um, misconception I hear a lot is, oh, Google Cloud Services look at your data. They look at Gmail data to use that for advertising. Um, The misconception there is that Google Cloud Platform is the same as as Gmail, Mm -hmm. and these are fundamentally different services. So Google has contractual guarantees around how they handle your data in GCP, and it is inherently secure and private, just like running on-prem services. Um, as far as differentiation between the two, I think the key question is one of complexity. And so you can make both cloud secure. There is some configuration involved. And typically, GCP services are just a little bit simpler to work with. Mm. So specifically, it, it comes back to this Lego bricks theme again. Um, the Lego bricks on AWS tend to be a bit smaller. So for example, if I'm thinking about AWS networking, which is vital for security. um, I have to think about each region, each zone. I have to think about defining subnets on each zone that I want to use. Um, On GCP, that's not required. So instead, instead, I can define global networks and then define subnets for each region that I want to use. And inherently, that's a lot simpler to deal with. So there are just fewer areas where you can make mistakes. On the other hand, the nice thing on AWS is that you have a huge number of certified people and tons of mindshare, and so that means when I'm going to look for an AWS certified security engineer, I can find them. They're all over the place, and on the GCP side, I'm going to have a harder time finding them, so either I have to offer someone a big paycheck so they can look at my security, or I need to train my own people. Mm. Joe, do you have anything you want to
1: jump in and add? No, I think that about covers it. I mean, you know, along with the, the misconceptions that you hit on earlier, though, I think that there's also the notion, um, you know, that with AWS, that if you're in retail, that um, AWS is, is obviously spying on all your data, right? And I think that's also a misconception along the lines of the Gmail conversation we had. So just want to throw that out there.
0: Interesting. Okay, so that's security. You've also touched on resources. Um, what about scalability when it comes to both platforms?
2: I'm kinda of gonna throw out the same argument. So fundamentally scalability um, is often a problem of, of complexity. I'll just put out there that there are some services in each cloud that are just phenomenal for scalability. So one of our favorite services is AWS Lambda. Lambda is just a fantastic way to, small, to scale a small service without having to deal with a lot of details. Um, on the GCP side, we love BigQuery because it's a serverless big data database. It just scales up to massive amounts of data In seconds um, which is something where there's not quite any other equivalent on any other cloud or third-party service. Um, The the issue that you run into with scalability beyond that is that to scale your own services requires configuration and so again if I want to make services that scale across multiple regions within the United States or maybe out to Europe and Asia On GCP, the networking and configuration that allows me to do that is just a little bit simpler. So for example, when I go into the AWS console, I always have to select a region. And within that view, I can only see services within that single region. If I want to look at some services I've deployed in US West 2, pull those up in the console. Now I want to check my services in US West 1. I have to change that selection to see those different services. And so when I'm thinking about multi regional scaling Google becomes just a little bit simpler because again the Lego bricks are kind of larger, Um, they're just larger pieces that I have to handle in order to configure my services to scale.
1: And also historically, I mean, AWS has kind of taken the notion of um, you know, with things like Kinesis, for example, right, you'd have to manually add shards. I know they're improving the process, but, um, you know, in Redshift now, I think it's, it's a bit nicer to use, but, it, you know, historically, it's been, anytime you want to scale out your, your particular service as well, you have to um, manually scale it out. So, whereas with, with GCP, it's, it's a bit, uh, th- that's taken care of for the yeah. most part, so.
0: Okay. Um, all right, another heavy hitting topic uh, when it comes to cloud is availability. Can you guys speak to availability a little bit?
2: Yeah, I would say, I mean, both clouds in this respect um, have a huge number of regions that you can choose from, and that inherently makes these services highly available. Uh, both cloud providers have seen single regional outages. We had an outage a couple of months ago in a single GCP region that had to do with networking, took out a lot of services and processes. Um, a couple of years ago, there was the famous... AWS S3 outage, um, yeah. both of these, you can avoid these problems by going multi-regional, which adds some complexity to your infrastructure. And again, that's where Google has a slight edge um, because of the simplicity of setting up multi-regional infrastructure. On the other hand, um, the AWS edge again, is just that massive mind share. And so I can find engineers who are experienced in making my services available across multiple regions Um, and can do that in a very reliable way. So on on the GCP side, I'm just going to have to take some responsibility for training those engineers or finding them somewhere so they'll really understand how to make those services highly available. Um, I don't, I mean, statistically, I think both cloud providers will argue that they're more available and that they're more reliable. I really haven't seen a compelling difference so far. And so fundamentally, it is this cloud principle of just deploying across multiple regions that allows you to have the extremely high Availability.
1: Well, that's the best practice that, that is really, um, we would say you should, if you're cloud uh, focused, you should be going um, multi-zone, multi-region by default. Um, I mean, the argument that about availability and how it comes to bite you really comes from those who didn't um, do cloud best practices in the first place, i.e. going multi-zone, multi-region in the first place. So just do that by default and I think you'll be fine. I mean, both clouds are terrific as Matt indicated. There's, there's no downside with either one, really. Uh, but failures happen. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think the problem, it, the cloud is almost too simple, and that's where companies get into trouble, right? So you open the console on a personal account, and you can have a server up and running within, like, five minutes, and it looks so easy that people don't realize that there are some steps you've got to take on both clouds to be really highly available to make your services extremely resilient. So, but the nice thing is, I mean, compared to on-prem infrastructure, in general, I now have access to so many regions and data centers within the United States. If I choose to use that capability appropriately, then I get a lot of extra um, availability out of the cloud.
0: Great. Um, so, you know, in this in this part of the discussion, you guys have mentioned a couple times resources. Do you feel Matt um, specifically? Are you seeing the tides turning? I know you talked about the massive install base for AWS. There's a lot of engineers that are highly available. Do you feel like things are changing a little bit on the GCP side there?
2: Um, I think they're starting to. So some of this is based on uh, Google's own statistics, which take all that with a grain of salt. You you can go look up the relevant numbers, but uh, Google has really been pushing certification much, much harder. They've added a number of exams um, to the suite of offerings for certification in the last year and a half. The number of certified engineers and the number of exams has just blown up. And then we're starting to hear a lot more conversation with customers and clients about GCP, where maybe two or three years ago, many companies would have dismissed GCP out of hand. They're at least giving those services consideration now, which I think benefits everyone in the whole ecosystem. On the AWS side, if you're just on AWS, you're gonna see AWS striving harder to compete with GCP. And GCP is really, really pushing for market share. And so we're gonna see a lot of exciting movement on both clouds and on Azure, Within the next couple of years, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I would say the GCP side, especially, um, like Google's hungry, uh, and and we we you know we're a Google partner as well as an AWS partner, and I would say the um, when we when we started partnering with AWS and Google um, last year, uh, you know, we first partnered with Amazon, and I mean. Can't go wrong with Amazon. And Google came to us and wanted wanted to work with us. We're like, like, well, I suppose we'll give you a shot. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: so, yeah, and I say it kind of jokingly because at the time in the Salt Lake area, at least, right? Like, we, we weren't seeing a lot of traction with GCP. You Fast forward to now, uh, it's a complete one eighty. Um, we're seeing a lot of conversations with GCP. Um, the the meetup that we run, the Google Cloud meetup, for example. I mean, uh, attendance was. Super sparse, I believe, last year um, you know, it was run. Uh, but then, um, just due to, I think, a lot of the, uh, the boots on the ground and just, um, you know, consistent um, uh, marketing and just people trying out GCP, we've noticed a groundswell of, uh, of interest and attendance in the meetups and the conversations around Google. The number of companies we see um, using Google in production or entertaining conversations about um, trying out Google in production or as a POC, or um, uh, it grows every day. So we, we, we expect this will continue growing every day. Uh, just, um, I mean, AWS for the longest time has had the mind share. Um, and it, it's, it's, I think for the foreseeable future, they'll continue to have the mind share. But now that there are other options out there, and I think people are starting to realize um, you know, maybe there's, there's um, there are alternatives to uh, AWS's offerings. Um, I think you're going to start seeing people try it out. So,
2: Yeah, what was the the stat you were citing last night, Joe, about um, cloud deployments and how much deployment we expect to see maybe in the next 10 years? How What percentage of enterprise workloads have moved to the cloud at this point?
1: 20%. There's some Gartner report. There's like 5.6% of IT budgets are dedicated to cloud. Um, what was it? 20% of uh, workloads have moved to the cloud. So, I mean, it's still extremely early days in the cloud in general. If you put it into that context, right. I mean, you're at, um, you know, as Amazon says, day one, uh, in the cloud, but I think it's truly the case. I mean, Matt and I always joke about, um, what we call bark matter companies. These are the companies that are out there that are like highly profitable, making a ton of money and and basically have, have their entire stack on like these, uh, on-prem windows servers, right? This is most companies I, I would imagine in America.
0: Yeah, that twenty percent sounds—it it sounds much lower than what I thought it would actually be.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, but when you start getting out there, right? I mean, like we—we like we deal with, uh, I would say, quite a few companies at this point in the—at uh, least in the Utah market, and um, yeah, the amount of on-prem uh, is, I would say, by far the, the, the bigger workloads out there. So it's not even a conversation like AWS or TCP at this point. It's like on-prem and then a cloud.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important to understand the companies that moved to cloud early and the companies that are moving to the cloud now. So early adopters were startups and technology companies. So Google and Amazon created their own clouds to address internal issues. And all these Silicon Valley startups realized they didn't want to handle infrastructure and now like Joe's saying, you have all these dark matter companies that are realizing that they're not tech companies. Right. And so it no longer makes sense for them to maintain their own data centers and to pay to locate their hardware in another state for failover for um, disaster recovery strategies, when instead they can spin it up on the cloud. Um, one of the themes we harp on a lot with our clients is as you're making this move, don't make, there are a lot of cloud mistakes that you can make that will make it much more costly what you're doing now. Whereas if you do it right, It's going to be much cheaper and much more scalable.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, it's it's quite an undertaking, right? If it's only at that twenty percent, a lot of companies have a lot of work to do uh, in advance of um, kind of catching up with where everything is heading.
1: And it's it's an educational process too, right? Because I think the the misnomer we see over and over is that a company will um, take their data or application workload and just fork that over to the cloud, um, which is a big big mistake. Uh, I mean, you're you need to make your, your applications uh, cloud-native. Um, you need to make your data workloads cloud-native too. These aren't really the same things that you have on your on-prem. Um, so you know, As an example, with, with data workloads, for example, we, we see companies that will just wanna move their relational data warehouse that's on like SQL Server, port that over to uh, the cloud. I'm like, well, but there, there's a different way. I mean, there's, there's cloud native data warehouses that it will, or uh, more purpose built to begin with for your workloads. So consider that, um, you know, as, as well as just uh, pipelines and everything else. So, I mean, you have these like crazy SSRS scripts that are running that, I mean, we, we would say just gut those and just start over.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Please don't like rip and replace uh, everything in the cloud in that way, because they're just gonna, uh, I think, uh, perpetuate a um, uh, problem
0: that you have on prem. Mm. Interesting. So how does multi-cloud come into play here?
2: So, My take on multi-cloud is that there are these services on each cloud that are so compelling that, say you're running on AWS, and then you realize that BigQuery is a phenomenal data warehouse. It's worth considering doing a multi-cloud strategy with some of your infrastructure on AWS, but using BigQuery for your data warehouse. On the other hand, you might be on GCP and you might realize that uh, AWS Aurora or AWS Lambda or AWS DynamoDB are phenomenal services and decide to make use of those somehow. Um, In doing this, you have to do a very careful cost analysis. I mean, the cloud vendors know what they're doing and they're trying to lock us all in, let's be clear. That is the purpose of data egress fees. And so if you're not careful, either data egress fees or complexity will eat you alive. But if you carefully plan out your cost structure, their complexity structure, there are certainly compelling business reasons to consider a multi-cloud strategy. Uh, another example is businesses that do a lot of advertising business with Google. All of the Google advertising products have deep integrations into BigQuery so that where if you were on AWS, you would have to write a bunch of custom API code to get your data on GCP. It just natively exports into BigQuery. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one reason I hear for going multi-cloud is to avoid vendor lock-in. And that's an understandable sentiment. Um, I think a lot of companies have been burned by lock-in with Microsoft or Oracle or Teradata and they're very nervous about the same thing happening um, in the cloud. I would say be very careful, though, about that sentiment because you can end up locking yourself into far more complexity and losing some of the benefits of a cloud-native strategy if you do this wrong. Um, Typically, what I tell clients is that instead of uh, worrying so much about lock-in, always maintain a risk and exit strategy. So suppose you decide to use AWS Redshift, which is a phenomenal service. Um, Make sure that you think about what you would do if you stopped liking AWS Redshift, or if that service disappeared, or if it got catastrophically expensive. What else could you do? How could you migrate to Google? How could you migrate to Azure? and keep that strategy in mind. Um, and then always keep in mind complexity and cost structure as you're pursuing a multi-cloud approach.
1: Yeah, especially with um, data is an interesting one too because there's not really a, um, and we take data warehousing, for example. I mean, there's not really a, a good open source data warehouse that you would say is competitive with something like a Snowflake or a BigQuery or a Redshift, right? I mean, these, these are purpose-built uh, in the cloud for that cloud, right? So this, this, this becomes an interesting situation where um, say you're locked into Redshift um, or say you're using Redshift, for example, it's like, well, okay, now you wanna migrate to say BigQuery. Um, I mean, it's, it's gonna pose a bit of a challenge. And it, so uh, it's, it's one of those things you wanna look at. And I think there's also the notion of there's a total cost of ownership and we always like to call it total opportunity cost of ownership. Right. So it's like, now that you're locked in, well, what did you just miss out on? Yeah. Um, so I don't, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I'd say if you're, if you're new to the cloud, definitely evaluate all the tools out of the gate to see what fits um, for your current and, and future use cases. Because I would say that, you know, there, there are definitely some situations where you, you won't avoid lock-in. Right. Um, you know, and especially as you start going down the path of serverless, for example, now you're locked in. But as Matt indicates, you're kind of going to get um, you know, there's a, there's a trade off with everything. I mean, if you want to go multi-cloud that kind of indicates you're going to go with like Kubernetes, right. Uh, and then workloads there. Well, okay. Now that you've done that, what are the trade-offs of that decision? So there's no free lunch.
0: Yeah. So let's di- I mean, let's dig into that a little bit more. You mentioned vendor lock-in, like what if people are looking at moving from one cloud to another, do you guys have any, any personal experience or stories when it comes to the ability to move?
2: And so I would say um, it partially depends actually how cloud native they are. Um, That is a problem with going cloud native, right? You do get this cost advantage, you get a scalability advantage by, for example, using AWS Lambda, but it does make it harder to get out. Um, If companies are considering making a cloud move, I would say they should really emphasize how they're gonna refactor their applications for their target platform, instead of just trying to lift and shift. Um, Lift and shift between clouds from on-prem to cloud is almost never a good idea. In In other words, naive lift and shift without trying to change how your infrastructure and application works, generally doesn't work too well. And so if you're moving to GCP, you should think about how you're using the advantages of GCP and the very data-native infrastructure they have. If you're moving to AWS, you should be thinking about things like uh, DynamoDB and AWS Lambda and taking advantage of those services. Um, It's certainly something that companies can do. We've seen many massive cloud migrations where companies have identified an advantage for their business. Just consider that use case and cost case very carefully.
1: Yeah, I mean, each cloud has its own way of doing things, right, and so, say. Understand that way. So, I mean, permissioning an AWS is done a certain way, right? And Google, uh, Google has a notion of projects. That's a different paradigm than, like, any of the other clouds, right? So you've really got to understand the nuances and what you're getting into as well. It's not just, um, like, set up a GCP account and start moving your AWS stuff over. It's not, it's not that simple. I would say, like, take the time to really understand, like, the underlying workflow and the philosophy behind the clouds as well. I think it's gonna, it's a good investment of time.
0: So would you guys recommend doing an MVP with both clouds? Like, how would you recommend that people would approach the MVP process there?
2: That's sensible, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you want to identify what your priorities really are. So, rarely do we see companies that um, successfully do a blockbuster move from on-prem to cloud in a single year. Um, Often there's one really compelling use case. That use case might have to do with big data that use case might have to do with their web services, um, but identify what the really big use case is, and then take that use case and do an MVP on both clouds. Is it data warehousing? Is it serverless um, computing like AWS Lambda? Or is it just virtual machines like EC2 and Compute Engine? And look at that very carefully and then assess. Um, I think it also, it does help to bring in, uh, frankly, this is tooting our own horn a bit, but bring in some outside consultants or at least people who have experience in both clouds, can really give you a more of a conceptual picture of how they're going to vary in their functionality. So you can make some business decisions around that.
0: Okay. Um, All right, so we do have, we actually have a question uh, that's come in. If anybody has any other questions, please feel free to um, enter them either into the chat bar or into the question section. Um, But we do have a question from Matt Harris, uh, and he is uh, asking about data security issues. Um, He's mentioning that unfortunately, media headlines do scare people as they don't dig down very deeply to understand where the issues really reside. And it will take some effort to alleviate those fears. Um, So what conversations do you both have when it comes to alleviating fears regarding data security in an effective manner?
2: I think some of this comes down to work that the cloud vendors themselves need to do. Um, We certainly try to evangelize for the security benefits of the cloud because that these are things that we actually believe in. Um, We believe that both clouds, both of the clouds we work with have phenomenal security engineers and they just need to get that message out there that these huge teams are working on security to ensure that your data is secure. Um, I think where the cloud vendors have some culpability in this issue is that they haven't done enough to provide tools to make it easier for customers to ensure the security of their workloads. I'd like to see more of that coming from the cloud vendors and I'd like to see them advertising that better. Um, I think we also need to see Google doing a better job of differentiating their services of saying GCP is not, not Android, GCP is not Gmail, it's a separate service. Um, it's locked down and secure and your data will be secure there. Uh, I think corporations that are, are also taking advantage of the benefits of the cloud need to do more deliberate marketing around this issue. Um, It's just like the issues we're seeing with data privacy now, where they flew under the radar for a long, long time, and then suddenly they blew up um, with some major Facebook scandals and other scandals. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, American corporations and any corporation that's getting into the cloud needs to get out in front of this issue and talk about why the cloud is secure, what kind of security engineering goes on within the cloud vendors, and what kind of security teams they themselves are deploying um, to build trust with their clients and customers.
0: Great. Um, All right. We have uh, another couple questions coming through. So one of the things actually, when we talked about the core competencies and like sort of the core pillars um, for, you know, AWS versus GCP, one thing that we didn't discuss yet, which is on everybody's mind, of course, is cost. And like, what's the cost differences? So we do have um, a question coming in that's uh, related to that. Uh, what do you recommend for personal users that require large data sets and low cost? So kind of a two-point question. What do you think about cost overall, and then what do you think about that specific case, which is a personal user who has large data set and they're looking for low cost?
2: I would say on that one, um, BigQuery hands down. Yeah. So BigQuery, uh, if you so if you have a Gmail account, you actually already have a GCP account. Uh, Go to console.cloud.google.com, and you'll open your GCP account. You can get to the BigQuery service there. You can immediately begin querying public data sets. So you'll see an option to open public data sets, and there's tons of interesting public data that you can look at. And then you can also immediately upload your own data or pull data from an S3 bucket or a Google Cloud Storage bucket and start querying it. Um, BigQuery, in terms of something you can spin up immediately, it's like one minute to configure it and be ready to go. Um, maybe we'll send out to the email list after this just a, some simple guides for how to start running queries on BigQuery.
1: Yeah, I mean, nine times out of ten, I mean, BigQuery is going to be the data warehouse that we recommend. And it's not, uh, I mean, it, it's really, it comes down to uh, I think the nature of this question, right? You have a lot of data and you want the lowest cost. Um, but that, I imagine this question is kind of related to analytics, right? I mean, maybe AI workloads might be a separate thing, or um, but um, but yeah, in general, like that's that's a good starting place. And from there, I mean, you could use a number of services on top of um, that data uh, for AI. For example, you could use um, AI platform uh, against the um, query. For example, um, I think it's uh, and that's a pretty cost-effective manner to to get machine learning models built as well. So, yeah. And cost in general, though, um, yeah, I mean, definitely use the uh, uh, cost calculators. I think that you know, to step back, I mean, a good, a good, practice is always use the cost calculators. AWS has Cost Explorer as well, which is mm-hmm. which is great. Um, it'll give you a nice trend of um, your costs and make recommendations for improvements. I think that's one area where AWS shines. If I think a bit over um, GCP, but GCP does have some some really good things too, where it, it just sort of bakes in. Uh, cost optimization in quite a few areas as well, right? So in BigQuery, for example, storage tiers, um, you know, become cheaper, um, you know, over a period of time at least 90 days, it cuts in half, right? For things that haven't changed. So, you know, it's I would say just get to know that. The other part, again, is like you know, and I I always say this a lot is like is understand the cloud way, right? Like how does this cloud do things? Like each cloud does costing differently, right? and you really need to understand that part as well. Um, So it's just, I think a matter of just like do your homework and uh, use the calculators. There's no, I mean, there's no shortcut around it, so. Yeah,
2: Yeah. and I'll follow on with what Joe was saying. So I think traditionally, if I have a data center and I'm running some web application, then I'm gonna think about performance engineering. In other words, maybe I'm using Java. I'm going to think about how to optimize my Java code to maximize the servers I have and minimize the number of servers I have to buy. Um, In the cloud, you have to kind of think about engineering a bit differently. Now you want to think about cost engineering. So, which service is going to be the best for what I'm trying to do from a cost standpoint? Um, For a website that's not getting a lot of hits, like AWS Lambda pops up all the time, when you start getting a huge number of hits, you might be better off hosting your own servers on EC2. And those are the kinds of questions you have to think about. And along the lines of what Joe was saying, there's just no clear winner between the two clouds until you dig down at a service by service level and dig down into specifics of architecture and philosophy. And then, then you'll start to see differentiators, but each cloud has its advantages in the cost department.
1: I think what would be an interesting thought experiment is that when egress charges go away, um, that's when I think the true economics of the, the clouds and the, uh, the benefits of the clouds will be revealed. Because at that point you have no penalty for transferring data. I think right now you're, you're sort of seeing an interesting, um, almost artificial barrier to uh, people fully utilizing a multi-cloud strategy precisely because they're egress fees. Mm. Uh, I think once those go away, and I and I, I, I suspect they will at some point. It's kind of it reminds me of uh, when uh, uh, cell phone companies would charge you for minutes back in like the nineties. Yeah,
0: uh,
1: egress fees remind me a lot of that. Like yeah. you know, they tend to be conscious of like calling your grandma and stuff. So it's like this. Somebody's gonna pull the trigger at some point, point. and at that point, I think it's gonna be a true. Um, it's, it'll be truly fascinating to see how this evolves.
0: Yeah, interesting perspectives. And let uh, me throw out one more yeah, thing
2: about costs. Um, what we see a lot is that companies think in terms of infrastructure costs or cloud costs, but often they don't account for time costs and salary costs. And so one thing we've seen several times is that a company has deployed a Hadoop cluster. And they're like, oh, this is so cost effective, but they're spending over a $1 million a year on salaries to maintain that cluster, versus yes, on the cloud, maybe it's more expensive for specific workloads, but you reduce your ops overhead and the need to install new software all the time. And that's something you need to think about across clouds too, the cost of people with certifications, the cost of the teams that will maintain the infrastructure.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right, so back to, at the beginning of the discussion, Joe, you mentioned that you know AL and MI is, um, it's, um, I'm sorry, AI and ML, uh, is right at the top of the kind of, you know, shiny pebble theory, like people, everybody's interested in this, how many people are actually doing it right. So where do you guys feel uh, the two cloud providers are stacking up when it comes to the um, capabilities on AI and ML?
1: I think it's, it's, it almost seems like there's two different approaches right now. And I think that the gap, and so what I mean by that is AWS um, you know, look look at historically what AWS has done. It started out with Amazon Machine Learning several years ago, and that was kind of a, a quasi AutoML product. Um, that was okay. Um, but then it moved into uh, SageMaker, really, as sort of um, replacing uh, Amazon's machine learning product. Um, and that was more of a hands on tool for data scientists. Uh, you could write code in notebooks or on your own or deploy models to, to the cloud and so forth. A terrific service, uh, I think, for like sort of coming up with a you know an end-to-end solution for for data scientists to deploy models um you know so there was that paradigm and then last year with the year before but there was a whole gamut of, of new um kind of pre-trained models that came out or, or pre-trained ai so you had like recognition comprehend uh, you know a bunch of other ones right and and it was and it was interesting seeing that take because it, it was clear that they were trying to um uh, I guess, catch up with where kind of Azure and um, Google had already been in the auto, auto ML space. Um, you know, and, and so I know Azure's had quite a bit of auto ML capabilities for quite a while. And GCP is, um, I, I would say, has been the leader in the uh, auto ML space yeah. uh, both in the pre-trained aspect as well as um, providing labeled data sets. So, um, so it, I, I can see I, the main differentiation I see right now is that Google is pushing True AutoML. I think a lot harder than um, AWS is. Uh, the, the services that I see with AutoML from uh, Google are um, probably the best in the world, right? Whether it's the um, uh, Using the pre-trained ones or providing, uh, uh, I mean, the, Google has a multitude of um, uh, Services where you can provide labeled data sets and provide you, um, you know, uh, predictions on those. I mean, those are fantastic services. Um, and just this uh, this last reInvent, I mean, SageMaker um, has an ML capability for um, uh, tabular data, right? But it's still a lot, it's pretty code heavy. I mean, you still got to manually write the code versus, uh, you know, with AutoML tables, for example, it's just give it a data set, um, give it the label and go, right? So I think, um, you know, you'll, my predictions is you'll see more of a convergence towards AutoML just because yeah. data science is, you uh, It's difficult and the number of data scientists out there is um, it's still a a frenzy to find these people any at least anyone is good so um, but I would say as far as you know who has like I mean I would say look at who has the bigger AI mind share in terms of um, uh, you know just this competency and and, uh, team as well and I would say Google has the lead on that one by quite a long shot actually
2: Yeah, I mean, frankly, Google at heart, if you think about their big achievements, we can think of them as a search company, but fundamentally, Google is a data engineering company. Mm -hmm. And so all the services on GCP just feel slightly more data native. Having said that, AWS has some phenomenal services like SageMaker, and they're investing a huge amount in AI and ML at this point.
1: Yeah. But, you know, I mean, the recent uh, articles that came out about the the SageMaker announcements, I mean, they, they weren't terrific so um but you know we'll see i mean it's still early days in this mm-hmm. field, so but i'd say right now i mean in my opinion i think google has the
0: lead yeah um okay we've got a couple more questions coming in so we have uh jonathan actually just shared a question um right around around the same topic of auto ml yeah. do you consider google the thought leader in automated machine learning compared to tools like driverless ai or data robots
1: um, I would say it depends on the type of problem you're trying to solve. Uh, I think, you know, especially DataRobot, they're doing a f- fantastic job at um, with, uh, with structured data problems, um, where you, you know you, you which is actually a lot of the data that you see, right? So it's, it's, it's rows and columns. So it's a lot of business data. Um, data Robot I think, has put a fantastic wrapper around, um, uh, and, a it, fantastic UX wrapper around this this um, the product, and it's a great product. Uh, so I would say in terms of usability, I would almost say, um, you know, driverless and, and, and uh, they probably have an edge over, um, at least I would say the usability aspect, which I'm not, I'm going to say is a very underrated aspect is actually, um, cause you have to get people to use these tools, mm-hmm. right? It's one thing to, to have great algorithms in the background, but you have to get the data there first. And so, um, you know, I can make an argument both ways. I think auto ML tables, um, the amount of uh, computation behind that and the algorithms. I mean um, Or are amazing. So especially, you know, with uh, things like explainable AI that just came out. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, What uh, Google just announced where you can actually even with deep learning get uh, um, You know, interpretable values for a uh, free model. I and mean, that's pretty huge. So, but I think it depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, if you're a developer and don't need a nice interface. Maybe, um, maybe just the OML capabilities of Google are great. If you, if you, if you, if you're cause I know, data robots more built towards like, and a lot of these other tools are more built towards business users. Like they call them like citizen data scientists, right? So this is more of that kind of thing where the person may not have engineering chops or even have know how to call APIs, but at the same time, um, you know, have a dataset that they want to get a prediction on. I think in those cases, um, there's definitely a lot of great products out there so but in, in general i would say on the theme of AutoML, i mean I, I see that as being the future um it's a it's a it's an area that i've personally worked in um you know on and off since 2012 with a few companies so it's uh it's a challenging problem but i i see that it's um it'll become more commonplace
0: yeah So okay um all right we have two two questions um coming in now so we have a question actually from Paul he's um, going back to the topic of um, data loss uh, data security he says that uh, recently he's seen GCP offering this data loss guarantee it doesn't apply to breaches in parentheses Um, but curious if you've seen this become more of a standard do you anticipate AWS offering a similar guarantee
2: I think both of the clouds are kind of laying catch up with each other in specific areas. Um, We saw this with S3 and Google Cloud Storage. So when Google Cloud Storage came out, it had encryption enabled by default. In fact, you can't turn it off. Um, Data written to disk is always encrypted. And so after that, we saw AWS, you can still store data to S3 without encryption, but it's becoming more and more the default, just a simple checkbox to encrypt your data. And so I think we'll see a response from AWS at some point. Um, I think there are probably, we could identify some areas where AWS offers better native security and we'll see responses from GCP in those areas.
1: Yeah, it seems like it would be the right thing to do to offer that kind of a guarantee though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
0: think it's a good okay. call. Okay, uh, final question coming in. Um, do you have any opinions on solutions such as Anthos or Outpost that enable hybrid or multi-cloud strategies?
2: I think the take we're getting so far uh, just talking to people, engineers, DevOps people, um, even frankly, some people from the cloud providers themselves, uh, these technologies are still a bit immature, but I think we're gonna see a lot of interesting activity within the next year or so where these start to become really compelling offerings. If you're looking to gradually transition from an on-prem infrastructure to something fully cloud native, Um, Especially for companies that are going to face substantial issues with data egress costs, where there's a compelling reason to keep things on-prem, or where it's not possible to do really deep integration between their on-prem infrastructure and the cloud. I think these services are really going to start to move and make life a lot easier for on-prem DevOps people.
0: Okay, all right. So, I mean, in, you know, from a basic summary point, we've talked about AWS. They've got that huge install base. They have Mac, massive market share. It's going to be a lot easier to find uh, maybe some of the engineering help that you need on there. Um, for GCP, we're talking about, you know, you've hinted around that at a superior data platform, actually not, not, not so much hinted when it comes to BigQuery. Um, it's a, you know, an engineering company at, at, at its base. Uh, so you get access to great dev experience. It can be harder to hire for certifications might be tough. We haven't really talked about that. Um, but, you know, what would you guys say just kind of on an overall, you know, I know that you are certified in both AWS and GCP. You work deeply within um, both clouds. So even though you don't necessarily have like a dog in the fight, what's your, your final thoughts on AWS versus GCP?
1: Um. Yeah, I would say uh, you know, especially if you're just getting started, try out both. Honestly, just just see what see what you like. Um, you know, it, you can't go wrong with, with either cloud, to be honest. I mean, it because I mean, here's the deal: there, there's companies running production workloads, and uh, you know, there's a lot of money at stake in both clouds. So it's like in um, these companies, there, there are a lot of successful companies running their businesses in both clouds, um, and there's a lot of people who are running just personal workloads on both. So I would say just find out what works best. Um, I mean, Amazon has a nice free tier, and, and Google Cloud has a terrific free tier, actually. It's $300 um, for 12 months. Use whatever you want. So, um, but as far as, like, you know, I, I would say, you know, my opinion, I, you know, if, if you're looking for data tools, I w- will slightly lean towards Google in some regards. They, the data tooling tends to be, i say, a bit more, Fully baked, and 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 here's, I mean, so it's sort of, sort of different philosophies, right? I mean, when you talk to AWS, it's like they they will, they will uh, admit that the company is basically a bunch of startups within a bunch of startups, right? And that's just the philosophy. It's a very customer obsessed uh, approach to um, uh, to the product. They get things out quickly. On um, you know the trade off of that is maybe the products aren't fully baked. Um, you know, so so especially. Given recent uh, announcements at re:Invent, I would say um, give those products some time to try out. That's just a track record of AWS. They're, they're probably not going to be 100% mature by the time they're released. Um, whereas with Google, I would say it's it's a different approach where the, the products tend to be very, even the alphas tend to be very mature um, with, you know, by comparison. So, um, you know, so I'd say that that you know, take that for what you will. Um, I mean, cause it's, it's one of those things where, uh, maybe not fully baked will work for what you need, right? If you, if, you know, it's just a classic Pareto thing. Maybe you just need, you know, uh, maybe that you, you get what you need from the 80%. So, uh, but it's, yeah, I would say just, just try and try both out and, uh, do mm-hmm. what you like.
2: Yeah. And I guess my main bit of advice would be, especially a year or two ago, We saw a lot of companies dismissing GCP out of hand. Um, CTOs had friends who use AWS. Maybe they had one or two tiny AWS workloads and they wouldn't even consider Google. Um, Don't dismiss anything out of hand, even if you have a handful of workloads. If you're looking to move a massive amount of infrastructure, do a careful evaluation. Um, Same thing for the GCP side. Don't dismiss AWS if you have a little bit of stuff on GCP. Um, do a careful about evaluation of the particulars of your workload and just kind of understand the differences in the clouds that AWS tends to have finer grained Lego bricks and the GCP services, there's not quite as much management, but you do have this um, maturity edge on the AWS side that might be really critical to your business.
0: Great. Joe and Matt, thank you guys both so much for joining us um, for sharing your expertise. Um, we will send a recording of this webinar back out to all of the uh, attendees so everybody can kind of review it. We'll share some information about your company and how they can find you guys if they're looking for, um, to continue the conversation. So thank you both for your time today. Thank you to all the attendees on the line and uh, we wish you guys a